G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer. Thanks for tuning in. Now, today on the program, China and Indonesia and Canberra's relations with both. Are we witnessing a new Cold War with Beijing? And do the growing Sino-American tensions, what do they mean for Australia? Plus, Islam is asserting itself in Indonesia's young democracy. Our northern neighbour of more than 250 million, that goes to the polls in April, and fears are growing that hardliners are increasingly shaping Jakarta's public discourse. All this could have grave consequences for Indonesian civil society and relations with Canberra and the rest of the West. Stay with us for that. Trade spats, US indictments of Huawei, tensions in the South China Sea. No wonder some say we're witnessing a cold war between Beijing and Washington. Now, for what it's worth, I think these concerns are probably overstated because, among other things, China and the US are far more economically integrated today than the US and the Soviets were during their epic standoff. Still, one thing is clear. The US-China relationship, as one of my next guests says, will be, quote, characterised by both cooperation and open strategic competition, and this competition will increasingly have a hard edge. Now, so says Greg Sheridan. He's the foreign editor of the Australian newspaper. And joining Greg and me to discuss these tensions and to try to explain what the growing US-China rivalry means for us here in Australia is Linda Jacobson. She's the founding director and chief executive of China Matters. Linda, Greg, welcome back to Between the Lines. Great to be with you. Huawei, this is the 5G telecom technology. Greg, what's the significance of this week's twin US indictments? Well, I think this is a very significant development in geostrategic terms. I don't think it's a Cold War. As you say, they're economically intertwined and there will be a lot of cooperation as well as competition. But you had statements today or yesterday from the head of the FBI, the Attorney General, the Homeland Security Secretary, the Acting uh, Defence Secretary, saying in public what Western intelligence agencies say universally in private, and the Americans and British have said in public before, which is that Chinese companies and entities routinely engage in cyber espionage, um, they steal intellectual property, and uh, they uh, hack into um, Western cyber systems and defence systems. Now, I'm not prejudging the specific allegations against Huawei, At the same time, you've got technology changing so that we're about to get a 5G network around the world, which is going to be revolutionary. It's the Internet of Things. It will allow artificial intelligence to run much of our vital infrastructure with very little human day-to-day involvement. And it is the the view of Western intelligence agencies that it's, it's too dangerous to let that infrastructure will be provided by China. So we're going to have a big reassessment in Western countries. I think we're going to have to recognize there are strategic industries which we have to be involved in. The Chinese will always underprice you in strategic industries because they recognize their strategic importance, so they'll always bid low. And this is now we're going to have to resort the way we organize our own economies to take account of these strategic industries, and we're going to have to restrict Chinese involvement in it. Linda, Greg is far from alone here. Huawei's critics say the indictments show a company that thought it did not have to comply with global rules, and this has often been the China way. Your response? 
For the first, I'd like to say I agree with Greg. It is definitely a significant moment. Um, Huawei has continuously said, show us the proof. Now the United States authorities have laid down evidence, precisely what Huawei has demanded for quite some time. It's also significant for one reason other than the one that Greg mentioned, and that's that there will be two technological avenues in the world, and one will be led by the United States and the other um, by China. And they'll develop, they'll grow um, in tandem, but in parallel universes. Greg, uh, how would you respond to the counter-argument that the charges against Huawei in Washington, they're political or at least tied to the US-China trade talks? Is there any truth to that? Well, uh, uh, first of all, I, I deeply agree with Linda's analysis there. I, 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 that's what I was saying much more clumsily myself. The, the world is going to develop into two high-tech systems. I think it'll be two internets. Um, they're going to be very different protocols. I mean, the, the revolutionary impulse in our world is not Donald Trump, it's Xi Jinping. Uh, with his social credit system, uh, with his uh, weaponization of digital technology, both in a social and political and international context, conquering the South China Sea, militarizing it, uh, with his efforts to inter intervene in, in the politics of Western democratic countries. And I think any president, you know, Trump is more assertive and cruder than another president would have been, but any president would have gone down this road. Everything is interlinked, of course, but the American judicial system is not like the Chinese judicial system. You cannot just order up a criminal prosecution. The prosecutors mm -hmm. won't do it. Um, now, these charges are not yet proven. Everyone deserves the presumption of innocence. I believe that, and I apply that to Huawei and its executives. But I do not believe for a moment that American institutions are so corrupt that they would launch criminal prosecutions just on a political whim, whereas, of course, I believe that happens in China all the time. And, and you have to bear in mind, these concerns about Huawei, Linda, they're hardly confined to Washington. Um, aren't there legitimate global fears that its rollout of this 5G network, that'll increase opportunities for, you know, what Greg was talking about, cyber spying, theft, things like that? Um, absolutely. These concerns are real. Um, I think there's a whole host of countries who have looked very carefully at Huawei's um, actions and come to much of the same conclusion that now the US, who have put evidence, obviously, on the table, are prepared to put evidence on the table. Um, so, I mean, these are legitimate concerns. But I would comment on the issue of, um, is there political motivation? I agree with Greg, there isn't. We have to um, trust the juridical system in the United States. But this happens against a backdrop of intensely worsening relations between the United States and China. Just the view from China, which I think is important to remember, is from China this obviously seems as if um, the United States is absolutely intent on slowing down our technological advancement. Well, on that note, what happens, Greg, if China indicts a US company or finds some US executive to arrest? And we, um, should, and we should stress that China just recently detained two Canadians on national security allegations last year. Preposterous charges. One guy works for the International Crisis Group, uh, you know, the, the, the sweetest uh, motivated NGO in the world and, and basically a left liberal organisation, you know, no... And and he's very open about his contacts with Chinese security people. This poor innocent Australian blogger, who's just gone to China um, and been arrested, 
Quite likely, because we supported the Canadians in asking for their citizens to be released. I mean, China is expert at flinging people into jail. I mean, you can go to jail in China now for the crime yeah. of being a Canadian. I was a correspondent in China in 1985, and I wrote a big feature for the Sunday Times of London and the Australian on China's effort to develop an independent, reliable, non-political legal system. Well, that was slowly progressing. I mean, I must say very, very slowly. Xi Jinping has just blown that all up. That, that, none of that applies anymore. There's a lot of international businesses are very worried and nervous about the status of their executives in China. So, but we all know that China's political system will respond to the political dictates of the party. I mean, million Uyghurs in detention camps, Christian churches are savagely repressed. China doesn't have a human rights dialogue with, with Australia anymore. It's changed fundamentally under Xi Jinping. And this is the world trying to come to grips with that in some way. Linda Jacobson. Certainly, repression has increased during Xi Jinping's years in power into his seventh year. Um, certainly, the party, the Communist Party, has become central to just about any decision. Um, a company like Huawei, private or not private company, must abide by the national internet law if security concerns are mentioned by um, the government wanting information. So China certainly has transformed in a much more repressive direction um, over the last approximately five years. I just note that um, while I agree arbitrary detainment of the two Canadians is unacceptable, um, I do not think that the detainment of the Chinese-Australian blogger, Mr. Young, um, was necessarily related to what we're discussing here, Huawei. Um, I think it was sending a message, indeed. It was sending a message to Chinese-Australians um, in the aftermath of what China sees as our foreign interference discussion here and could be it had really nothing to do with the Huawei decision. If you just tuned in, you're on RN. I'm Tom Switzer, and my guests are Greg Sheridan from the Australian newspaper and Linda Jacobson from China Matters. We're talking about tensions with China. Um, I think across the region, Tom, um, nations are concerned about um, how, at the end of the day, will China use its power? I think um, that's the profound question that's going to really determine our region's peace. Um, no one wants to see um, a, a forced situation where they are forced to choose between the United States and China. I think we forget this. Mm. Um, they absolutely are. Um, they absolutely acknowledge that economically they want to come to terms with China. They must come to terms with China. I'm of the view that Australia has to find a way, despite our likes and dislikes, to come to terms with China because of the economic engagement that we have to have. Talking about choosing between Washington and Beijing, what's the latest on the question of phone ops, these freedom of navigation patrols in the South China Sea? Greg, has Canberra's position changed in the Morrison era? Christopher Pine has changed the rhetoric. Julie, our formal position hasn't changed, which is that we haven't decided to do a freedom of navigation exercise within 12 nautical miles of a disputed feature, nor have we decided not to do one. But whereas Julie Bishop made it abundantly clear, and this was backed up by many, many officials, that we just weren't going to do it because the cost was too great. Um, but just to return to Linda's point, 
Australia has come to grips with China. We've had an enormously productive relationship with China. Our policy towards China could not have been any better than it's been. We've had a deepening relationship with the US and we've grown rich uh, off China. Perfect combination. However, we cannot solve the China problem either for ourselves or for the region through some very clever policy. If China decides to impose its will on us to interfere in our politics, to get angry about our excluding Huawei from the 5G network, you know, if we can have the most sophisticated policy in the world. That's not going to prevent us from having trouble. So I agree that we, you know, our policy could always be theoretically better and we need the best China policy we can have. But that doesn't mean that we necessarily come to grips with China forever because it might decide it doesn't want to come to grips with us on our terms. And then we have to decide what are our core national interests. I think as a nation, we've done very well in protecting our core national interests and pursuing a positive relationship with China. Okay, but now you don't pursue that relationship at any cost. Two issues here, Linda, uh, freedom of navigation patrols, but also the question that Greg addresses, are we finding the right balance in our relationship with Beijing? Um, the second question first, it's going to just get tougher and tougher. I'm sure Greg and I agree on that. We yeah. have to stand up and push back when our values are being challenged. Um, any foreign interference obviously has to be pushed back against uh, in a very determined fashion. I fully agree with that. Um, but will there be increasingly moments when we cannot have the same stance as our alliance partner because the world is changing, but above all, the region is changing because of China's rising power. Yes, we are going to have to get used to a much more independent thinking on our foreign policy, and that means our relationship with and, China. And phone ops? And on the phone ops, um, I, I suppose, um, based on what I read, that what, Greg, you wrote, I would slightly disagree with you. Um, Pine used slightly new wording, but as you said, there hasn't been a change in policy. Um, Australia has been adamant for such a long time that it, it's not going to uh, conduct FONOPS, but it always leaves open, of course, that option. Um, I think strategic ambiguity here is exactly called for. It's better that China doesn't know, would Australia do one? But um, I can't see cha Australia changing that policy. No, Final no, word, Greg Sheridan. We, we, it was more a change in rhetoric, I'd agree with you there. But the only thing, uh, so Linda, I benefit enormously from your analysis always, but the only thing I, I would really uh, sort of disagree with strongly is the proposition that our thinking on China hasn't been independent up until now. There have been countless matters where we've had a different China policy from the United States. We joined the, um, uh, the um, infrastructure bank that China put together against US wishes. We've, we've always had a different rhetoric on human rights. I think the Americans have often had better rhetoric than we have on human rights. There is no problem for us at all in the US expecting us to do this or that, and we don't want to do it. Quite the reverse. It is our national desire to entangle the US in our affairs and to keep the US committed to our security and to our region. I don't think it's a question of us becoming more independent in our thinking. We could not be more independent than we are. It is a question, nonetheless, of trying to keep the US committed to our security and trying to protect our core national interests while at the same time pursuing the most constructive relationship 
that we can with China. And if the United States isn't going to be committed to Australia's security in the same manner and fashion that it has until now, because we're living in such a new era? Well, then we'd have to triple our defence budget and so forth. But there's no indication of that as yet. There's, In fact, we have been very... Another element of our national success has been getting the Americans to commit to Marines in Darwin, getting the vastly increased intelligence intimacy between Australia and Americans, continuing to get the very best American uh, military equipment, which no other ally except Britain in the world uh, gets. And indeed, our influence with America continues to be a very big part of our coin in Asia. But if America is drifting away from Asia, and I don't think it is, our strategy then is to become a core interest of the US, which it will never abandon. And if we think America is really no longer of any consequence, we'd be mad. But if we do think that, well, then quadruple our defense budget, you know, build a lot of submarines quickly and look at nuclear weapons. To be continued, Greg Sheridan, (laughs) Linda Jacobson, thanks so much for being on Between the Lines. Thank you very much. Thank you. Greg Sheridan, Foreign Editor of The Australian, and Linda Jacobson from China Matters. Well, it's been more than 20 years since the downfall of Suharto, and during that period, Indonesia has been widely viewed as a model, moderate, democratic, Muslim-majority society. But are we witnessing Jakarta's tilt towards a more conservative, even fundamentalist Islam? After all, it's widely anticipated that Indonesia's next vice president is a Muslim cleric known for curbing religious freedoms and opposing gay rights. Meanwhile, Islamic schools are expanding. Conservatives have tried to ban alcohol and sex between unmarried people. Headscarves for women, once rare, are now widely worn. So should we be worried about the state of Indonesia's relatively young, tolerant democracy? Well, for answers, let's turn to our next panel. Greg Feely is Associate Professor and Senior Fellow of Indonesian Politics at ANU's Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs. He joins us from our Parliament House studios. And Greg Earle is a columnist with the Lowy Institute's Interpreter. He's also the editor of the Asia Society's Asia Briefing. Now, I've just been chatting with another Greg, Greg Sheridan about China. It's a Gregathon here at RN. <laughs> Greg Feely, Greg Earle, welcome back to Between the Lines. Oh, thank <laughs> you, Tom. Pleasure. Greg Feely, let's start with you. Heading into the April general election, what is Joko Widodo's biggest vulnerability? Uh, There are a couple of really big ones for him. Uh, The economy is one of them. Uh, If interest rates go up, well, then history tells us, recent history tells us that the popularity of the president goes down. Um, This happened to SBY, happened before him, and it's uh, a possibility for Jokowi as well. But we're three months out from the election. The economy is ticking over reasonably well, so I don't think he would be too concerned on that front. The second issue for him is Islam. He's always been vulnerable to attack from Islamists who regard him as something of a henchman for both non-Muslims and foreign forces. Um, Much like a lot of Republicans have an almost visceral dislike for Hillary Clinton, Islamists have a similar kind of attitude towards Jokowi. They simply can't abide him. And so there's about... 
30 to 40 percent of the electorate who are of that view. What would be a problem for Jokowi is if there was any kind of Islamic issue that would emerge that might have a galvanising effect on people in the middle of the spectrum, the people outside that 30 or 40 percent that might suddenly make them think, in fact, he's he's not a good Muslim. Most Muslims, by the way, do say that they regard him as a as a, a more strongly Islamic candidate than they do his rival, Prabowo Subhanahu. Okay, now that brings us to the running mate of President Joko Widodo, and he's likely to become Indonesia's vice president at the election. I'm talking about Maruf Amin. He's a 75-year-old Muslim cleric. Greg Fairley. Uh, yes, I've known him for um, 25 years and uh, watched his career. And he's both an Islamic scholar and ulama, but he's also very much a politician and a practical politician at that. He's built his career in public life for being able to do deals to work out what's the best way to establish patronage networks, to lock people into your support base. That's a kind of can-do person he is. Um, He's criticised the Miss Universe pageant swimsuit contest as pornography. I'm getting this from the Wall Street Journal. His council has issued fatwas against interfaith marriage. And uh, when he became head of the Indonesian Alima Council, that's Indonesia's leading authority on Islam, he issued a fatwa criminalising lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender activity. This guy sounds like a fundamentalist, Greg. <laughs> uh, he certainly can be. That's one of the, the geysers that he has. And indeed, for the last 20 years or so, that's been really the public face of Matruf Amin. Um, and I think he is an inherently conservative man. He's not always as um, puritanical as some of those decisions would suggest. So when he's in different settings, he behaves in a different way. So you're quite right to point to his role in the National Ulama Council, where he has been responsible for a lot of anti-gay, um, a lot of anti-Shia, Ahmadiyya um, uh, uh, rhetoric and rulings, um, which have done a great deal of harm. Okay, well, what about the running mate for the other presidential candidate, Prabowa, Greg Earl? Well, I think this is one of the really interesting things about this election. The, the new interesting face in the election is Santiago Uno, who's a 49-year-old businessman, who's the running mate of Prabowo Subianto. He's proving quite a dynamic figure. He was perhaps the most dynamic figure in the election, the first election debate a week or so ago. Um, he's going out on the election campaign trail, doing the sort of things that Jokowi used to do when he was the front runner in the election when he was running for president, meeting people. Um, I think he appeals to young people. I think he's the face of the future. Santiago Uno, Greg Feely, is that right? Is he the face of the future? I think he is. That's He's not the only face of the future. <laughs> um, most Indonesian political observers and indeed political actors believe that Jokowi will win, win the election on the 17th of April uh, this year. And so the real focus then turns to 2024 when the next election will be held. And it's people like Santiago. There's a whole lot of characters like him who are younger, more dynamic, have cut their teeth in local leadership roles and are ready for the next step. And so um, that will be quite an exciting regeneration of Indonesian politics, but we're going to have to wait four or five years to see it develop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about uh, Joko Widodo's controversial attempt to release the jailed cleric uh, Akubashir? This is the Bali Bombers' so-called spiritual leader. Has that backfired? Well, it has. I think what you're seeing there is a, is a case of election campaign daily tactics sort of um, um, 
triumphing a long-term careful strategy. But I think, on, on the other hand, it also shows that deep within the Indonesian system and within Jokowi's government, uh, there are people who are really inclined to keep a lid on Islamic fanaticism and, and Abu Bakr Bashir's organisation. And so there's been such a backlash against it that it's now under review and you know, it seems as though that's not going to go ahead. And let's remember the October 2002 Bali bombings killed more than 200 people, including 88 Australians. If you just tuned in, you're on RN. I'm Tom Switzer. My guests are Professor Greg Feely from the Australian National University and Greg Earle. He's a former AFR correspondent in Japan. Carter. We're talking about the Indonesian elections in April. Now, about half of Indonesia's, what is it, about 265 million people, they're younger than 30, extraordinary. Greg Feely, to what extent do they subscribe to a more conservative interpretation of Islam? I think it's a divided, so that's a, a large group of, of people, many tens of millions of people, and they fit across a religious and political spectrum. So there are certainly, there's a rising trend of Puritanism uh, amongst um, many in that millennial group. Uh, the way they consume religion is much more conservative than what their parents have been. They're the sorts of people who wear extremely modest clothing, who disapprove of homosexuality and the like. But however, if we look more closely at those people as individuals, we often find that their private lives are still actually quite cosmopolitan. And so things are not quite as they seem when we look at the reporting in newspapers when we look at surveys, when we go to people's houses, when we talk to them about uh, what kinds of things they do in their private time, what kind of personal relations they have, sexual relations they have, often we find it's a far more complex picture. But nonetheless, overall, the trend is towards conservatism. Greg Earl. Oh, well, I'd agree with that. I think just because people are publicly manifesting themselves as, as more Islamic mm. doesn't mean they're fanatic. And I think this sort of um, trend that you're seeing in Indonesia has been played out in other societies. It's not a purely uniquely Indonesian one. Even in Western societies, in some Western societies, young people are becoming more Christian in, in some places. So I think as in complex societies, people look back to their traditions and old cultures, sometimes cherry-pick aspects of them, and sort of return to them. Okay, so the consensus here is that we shouldn't really be alarmed by these developments in Indonesia. Greg Feely, what are the implications here for our relationship with Jakarta over the next five years? Well, I think one of the things to emphasise is that both of the leading the presidential candidates are not particularly Islamic figures, even though they go to a lot of trouble to court the Islamic vote. And if Islam was on a kind of fundamentalist surge in Indonesia, you would see the presidential candidates, not the vice presidential candidates, but the presidential candidates having that kind of Islamic flavour, and they don't. Nonetheless, for a country like Australia, we have to factor Islamic elements more into our, into our diplomacy, and we have to be more mindful of those things when we're dealing with Indonesia. And all this, Greg Earl, as Washington seeks closer security ties with Jakarta in the face of a, a growing uh, China. Yes, well, I think Indonesia, like Australia, finds itself really caught between China and the US. But I think uh, perhaps unlike Australia, it's going to really steadfastly try and maintain a more neutral position between those two countries. And so I think you're going to see whoever comes to power in Indonesia, and it seems like it's going to be Jokowi, um, that they will continue to sort of play that role as a, as a balancing force between those two countries and will constantly be sort of playing them off. And, in... and finally, Greg Earl, am I right in saying that these Indonesian elections are happening at the same time as the Indian elections. What does that tell you? Well, I think this is one of the things that's really being missed 
at the moment, this year ahead in Asia, that these two countries are both voting at the same time. That's a billion people voting, probably about a 70% turnout in both countries. That's far more people than vote in the US election. So this is really a festival of Asian democracy. There's, there's authoritarian and, and, and uh, intolerant religious trends in both countries, but the people seem to like voting, and I think that's something that's very positive about this year. A very positive thing amid all the negative things in the world this year. Greg Feely, your sense too? Yes, very much. I think there's actually a lot to celebrate. Um, there's illiberal aspects to democracy in our region, but the fact that these two very large countries in our neighbourhood um, have largely successful democracies is something to celebrate. Gentlemen, wonderful program to be continued. Thanks so much for being on Between the Lines. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Well, that's it for this week's show. And remember, if you'd like to hear the episode again or download our segments since 2014, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in again next week.